Well, if you're new here with us, we uh, are working our way through 1 Timothy. Uh, this morning, uh, we are in 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10. The title for our series uh, has been The Household of God. You probably saw it on the banner as you came in. And that's because uh, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 15, Paul, who's writing the letter, he says, I'm writing to you so that you will know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. So the context of all this teaching is what does it mean to be the church? How are we to relate with one another? How are we to, to act? And already we've seen sort of a dynamic between some very specific instructions that Paul gives. There's sometimes he's writing to the church in Ephesus specifically. Uh, he calls out some guys, right? He called out Alexander and Hymenaeus saying, uh, you know, they need to, be, need to be disciplined. They're teaching falsely. Those are specific instructions. But there are also very general instructions, universal instructions to the whole church. Uh, we've been reminded that the aim of our charge as a church is to love. That we are to hold the faith with a good conscience and to pray for all people. And so this dynamic of, of universal and very specific instructions is going to continue today. In fact, Paul is going to aim even farther below the surface than I think he has up to this point. And really what he wants to help us to see is that there is a, a dynamic that needs to happen where we understand not just what we are to do, but also who we are to be as the church. And today he he doesn't just tell us in general kind of who we are to be, but he goes specifically and looks at who we are to be as men and women in the church. His instructions are specific and, and gender specific. In fact, this week uh, marks the first of two key passages that we see instructions specifically to what it means for us to be either men or, or women in the context of the church. Now, uh, I think we know that this kind of topic is a controversial topic in our culture. Right? Just kind of highlighting that there's differences, that there are specific things that men or women should or shouldn't do that's just going to be controversial. Uh, in our day, it's more and more normal to see a gender as a matter of personal choice. Uh, there's a woman named Lorna Smedman, a professor uh, from Hunter College. Uh, she's moved on. But while she was there, she taught a course called Reimagining Gender. And uh, apparently she would begin each sort of course semester with, with these kinds of words, just articulating sort of her grounding, where, what, how she sees the world and how she sees gender. Uh, she says, my working assumption in this course is that gender is already imaginary in the first place, meaning that it's a construction, a fiction that we all live and work with in our daily lives. We know that this is increasingly the, the view of our culture, that gender is fluid, uh, that it's a matter of choice, that it's non-binary. Uh, we should not be surprised to find out that the Bible strongly disagrees with this view. What we see in the Word is the affirmation of reality that there are, in fact, male and female, that they are equal and yet distinct according to God's good design. This is affirmed and emphasized throughout the Bible not, not to be cruel, to those who are struggling with issues of gender identity, uh, not to ignore those who are facing real struggles when it comes to gender dysphoria, or those who are born as, as hermaphrodite. There are real struggles and difficulties, both physical and psychological, social, when it comes to issues of gender. The Bible isn't meaning to be unkind. What it means to be is loving and helpful. And so what we find here in our passage is what we see again and again in the Bible, that, that our gender as male and female is affirmed, that there are instructions from God so that we might better understand ourselves as human beings and so that we might know how we are to be as men and women. 
So with all that as preamble, we're going to look at uh, our text this morning, just a few verses. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, beginning in uh, verse 8. And uh, here is God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's our text. Uh, The title of the sermon, you might have noticed, is this, Angry Men, Immodest Women. It's going to be good. Okay, lots of good stuff in here for for us. Um, There is a theme, though, between these two kind of different uh, instructions, right? Very obviously different between men and women, but there's a common theme. So I want to articulate that so we know kind of what's holding this together. Uh, The theme is this, the gospel demands consistency between what we do and who we are. See, in both cases, Paul is giving instructions for how men and women are to behave in the church, but it's not just about doing certain things. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's really about understanding who we are in Jesus and then living out of that gospel reality. So two points are going to guide our time. Uh, First, the men. Godly men pray with purity and peace. Secondly, godly women adorn themselves with modesty and good works. So those are two points going to guide our time. We'll begin with the guys. Godly men, pray with purity and peace. Let's look again at verse uh, 8. That's where we find this instruction. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Now that phrase already tells us a lot about what's going on here. You see the connecting word, I desire then. Paul's saying, in light of what I just taught you, and all of that previous verses were mostly about prayer. In light of what I just taught you about prayer, Uh, I now desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. We're seeing here that Paul is going deeper beyond just the fact that the church should pray. We saw that really clearly last week. But now we're to see that it's it's not just what we do, but it's, it's the heart behind what we do. It's the consistency, again, between what we do and, and who we are. And what we see here is, is the first uh, specific word is spoken into the level of purity that men have. The wording there is, he says, lifting holy hands. In the Bible, holiness always has to do with purity. In fact, in the early church, they are just that image of of holy hands, clean hands. It would have right away brought to their mind the temple worship, the way that people worshiped in the temple. And there were some very clear, very extensive cleansing rituals that the priests would go to before they would go in and uh, offer any sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, There's an image here of the Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple. You can see in the foreground there, those large basins of water. That's where the priests would go and they would would clean their hands. Even in the New Testament, before people would approach for worship, they would wash their hands. And we find it in uh, the Psalms even. References to uh, Psalm 26, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of all your wondrous deeds. Very clearly, clean hands, holy hands are connected. They give the impression of a pure heart. And only those with a pure heart were fit to enter the presence of God. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is, hey men, look, some of you are coming to gather with the church. You're raising your hands. You're willing to worship and and pray. You're, You're doing all of those things. You, in fact, seem to be doing the right thing. And yet, your heart isn't clean. 
and yet there's sin that's festering within your life so that instead of your prayers being a sweet aroma unto the Lord, that's what they should be, instead they're rank and vile because there's a, there's a discrepancy there. So how does that happen? How, how is it that the church gathers and there seems to be genuine worship, all, all the men are praying and worshiping, and yet there's, there's an inconsistency there? Well, I think we know how this happens. I think we know that, that we easily and willfully turn a blind eye to our sin. That, that we have the impression very often that we are, we are right before the Lord, that our, kind of our lives, a clean slate, and yet there's sin that we, we can't yet see. Proverbs 30.20 uh, says it like this, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. We're blind to our sin. Now, I need to make sure we're clear here. The, the gospel of Jesus says that we, we actually can't clean ourselves. That Jesus on the cross died for our sins and gave us his righteousness, took all of our filth away, so that if you are a believer here today, you can know that in the eyes of God, you are holy and pure. You have complete access to the Father. That's not being disputed. But what Paul is saying is, look, if that's true of you, then the pattern of your life should be one of continually asking for God to help you see areas of sin so that you can confess, so that you can make things right. That, that should be the pattern of your lives. But these men have been neglecting that. The sense that I get here is that they have been kind of rushing through life, rushing to worship, rushing to pray, and have been neglecting to ask God to shed light on the darkness in their lives. Now, I think we know how this happens. In fact, I think this seems very familiar to us. Because if, if they were busy in the first century with whatever they had going on there, we definitely are busy now. Busier, right? There's more that fills our schedule more that fills our day. I mean, for many of us, we would say it's just a miracle for us to get here on a Sunday morning, especially if you have young kids, right? It's an act of God that everyone is here. They're clothed. They have two socks. They're, it's amazing. What, what more could God want than for us to come and gather as the church? I mean, is, he, is this really saying that we're supposed to take more time somehow? Like for, for guys, we're supposed to get up earlier and, and be in prayer before we come, asking God to to examine our hearts, asking for clarity about our sin? Is he saying that we should be more intentional, right? Not just rushing through the lobby, not talking to people into the second or third song, but coming in, quieting our heart, asking for God to give us clarity about things? Is he saying that maybe we should take communion more slowly, maybe pausing, maybe not even doing it one week because we want to make sure that we've had time before the Lord? Is that what he's asking of us on top of everything else? Yes, that's what he's asking of us. Yeah, clearly. Clearly, he's saying that it's not okay just to come and do the thing, to, to just do the weekly rhythm of church life, that we should have a heart behind it that is genuinely seeking the Lord. The gospel demands consistency between what we do and who we are. Otherwise, we dishonor God, and, and there are real practical consequences to an inconsistent lifestyle. Uh, Peter highlights one of them. This is in 1 Peter 3.7. This is written to husbands specifically, but the principle is the same. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, don't get distracted by the weaker vessel. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. 
But notice what it's saying there is they, these are husbands that are sinning against their wives. They're not being understanding or kind. And because of that sin, then their prayers are hindered. Why is that? Well, because, because God is not okay with double-mindedness. He's not okay with superficial spirituality. It, it, it's not okay to, on one hand, say to God, I, I need you, right, in prayer. Please bless me, give me clarity, help me. But then at the same time, be going in the wrong direction, to be living in disobedience. Those, those two things go against each other and they are going to hinder our prayers, which, which means, man, that this isn't just a big deal for us. This is a big deal for the church. Be- because in this chapter, the emphasis has been on praying for the lost. That prayer fuels evangelism. And so to have a church full of unrepentant men, leaders in the church that are that are keeping secret sins, not asking for God to shed light on those areas, not being honest, that is going to hinder the mission of the church. There's going to be a falseness there, which will mean that their prayers are unanswered, that the mission of God, the gospel, isn't actually going forward. So men, first question, is this you? Are you rushing through life? Are you maybe rushing here on a Sunday morning without without actually being intentional, intentional about asking God to give you clarity about the sin in your life and about confessing it and about pursuing holiness because Jesus has already paid the price for your sins. You want to walk in it. See, the lie that we would want to believe is that our sin doesn't affect anyone else but ourselves. What we see here very clearly is it is impacts everyone. It impacts the people, of course, we're sinning against, the people in our lives, but the the church as a whole. Now, Paul doesn't just sort of generally uh, speak about holiness. He actually zeroes in on one specific uh, area of sin. He says they're lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, this was clearly a problem for the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you've been with us, you've seen there's, there are false teachers stirring up controversy. There are people who are angry with each other. In fact, in chapter 6, to, uh, Paul says there are some with an unhealthy craving for controversy. So if you pictured the gathered church there, there would have been men who are coming who would seem to be in all sincerity, you know, praising God, worshiping God, and yet they're in a bitter feud with the guy next to him. And Paul's saying, this isn't, this isn't right. The, the worship gathering is to be a picture of the unity and peace of the church. You, you can't rightly display that if there isn't actually peace and unity in the church. Again, there's a gap between the behavior and, and the heart. So what do we do? What should you do if you're in that situation? Uh, it's actually really clear in, in the Bible. Jesus himself gives just a few verses that makes it really clear what you are to do. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, right, that's worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We can see why this is important. Because then you can worship with integrity. Then the integrity of the church is preserved. And because when you're in a bitter quarrel, your, your prayers are going to be skewed. There's not, you're not going to be praying in the will of God. See, this is a beautiful thing when this happens. It shows the consistency of, of the gospel and it allows us to live it out. 
One example from my own life. Not long ago, there was a, a guy in the church that I know well, and he came to me, and there was, there was an offense between us. There was an interaction that we had had, and I had spoken sharply, and he had taken offense, and he came and he, and he shared it with me in love and with the desire to reconcile. I was really glad that he came and talked to me because it gave me an opportunity to ask for his forgiveness because I, I hadn't seen it in my own blindness. I hadn't seen it as sin, but it was. I could ask for forgiveness. He could extend it. We could be reconciled. The other thing that I loved about it was the way in which he did it. He came to me privately. No one else knew about it. He didn't talk to anyone else about it. And he had said that in the inter- he had waited for the right time. It wasn't just right away. It wasn't just at his earliest convenience. It was when we could have a chance to sit down together. He said in the in- in between time, he hadn't been taking communion because he knew that there was something that needed to be set right. Look, this kind of thing in the church, does it not reveal the peace that God brings to us? That, that we don't have to, in anger, in bitterness, try to confront each other or ignore those kinds of things and just allow bitterness to fester? That The gospel sheds light onto our whole Life in every area of it. And God's desire is that we would actually live and experience that peace, especially in our interpersonal dynamics. So second question, for for the men in particular, is there anything that is unreconciled between you and someone else in the church or in your life? If there is, the text is, the implications of the text are really clear. Don't, Don't ignore it. Don't pretend that it's not a thing. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people in your lives, is not good for our church. Now, uh, the one question you might have about this is why the emphasis on men, right? That the point was godly men pray with purity and peace. I mean, is Paul saying that women never harbor bitterness or resentment? I think he's saying that. (laughs) Is he saying that women never get into conflict within the church or with others in their lives? No, no, that's, that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, we see evidence of it in his other writings to the Philippian church. He wrote and he actually called out two ladies who were in some sort of disagreement. Philippians 4.2, he writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So right there, he's making very clear, no, this is an issue. You have to deal with it. So why is he here speaking to the men He's writing to the men because he recognizes that this is a tendency of what it means to be a man. That men are more combative, more aggressive, more quarrelsome. You just have to look around you in our culture to see that this is true. Right? How many more wars have been started by men than by women? Men tend to be the abusers in a relationship. When you're in a bar or a pub... And someone says, you want to take this outside? You turn around, that's a guy, right? It's not a, women don't say that. They don't want to go outside. They want to talk about the issue. That's men, right? Men, we tend to be, to get our, get our fists riled up quickly. And men tend to want to sit on things. We don't like to talk about what's going on. We just want to pretend that everything's fine, even though that thing that person did really made us mad. And now there's a bitterness growing. We don't want to deal with it. And that that ruins things in the church. So here Paul is speaking into a tendency of men, not only for men, but this is something that tends to be more true of us. So men, let me ask you a couple questions before we move on. Men, what do we want the younger men in our church to understand about what it means to be a godly man? What do we want them to see in us as we worship and as we pray? 
Man, are we confessing sin? Are we pursuing holiness? Man, are we giving good examples of what it means to live with our wives in an understanding way? Are we pursuing peace with each other? See, when we live this way, we have so many opportunities to display the gospel change that actually is going on inside of us. For us to show our young people, look, this isn't just something we say. This isn't just us saying, I want to follow Jesus, and and I should, and we just do this as a family. It actually impacts my life. It actually changes me, and I'm so glad for it. This is the calling that God has placed on us, that, that we as men would be godly men who pray with purity and peace. That's the first point. The second, second, is for the ladies. Godly women adorn themselves with modesty and good works. So here's verse 9 and 10. Uh, Paul writes, uh, I desire, from the first bit, I desire likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, quick story. Uh, There's an early church father named John Chrysostom. He was uh, in Constantinople, the archbishop there. And uh, he was a brilliant theologian. Everyone loved to hear him speak. Uh, and he was very often invited to go and speak before the royalty, before the empress of the time. They just, he was just so eloquent and, and wonderful. And they loved him until he preached these verses. Uh, here's a painting of him preaching before the empress Eudoxia. And right after he preached this text and really preached against the lifestyles of the rich and famous at the time, and she was really at the pinnacle of that, she exiled him. She said, you're no longer welcome in this town. Which is interesting because... I mean, John Chrysostom, he, he was not a light and fluffy preacher normally. So it's not like he'd never talked about sin before. He, he for sure had talked about the gospel, the need to repent. But here, the empress, mm, she must have felt he crossed the line, right? There's a line, right, John, that, that some things, general spiritual applications are fine. But the way that I dress, the way that I do my hair, who, who has the right to tell us what we should dress like and, and how we should do our hair? That's often what we think when we see texts like this. We feel like this is getting a bit too personal. What we need to recognize before we move forward is that there is no line that God will not cross when it comes to our lives. There's no area of our personal lives that God says, no, you, you keep that for yourself. And the reason for that is because he, he actually really cares for us. He loves us. He, he promises to make us new completely, not here or there, not in a piecemeal approach. I mean, if you think about it, think about it in terms of a renovation. If you have the money, wouldn't you always renovate the whole house rather than just like a bathroom here and then three years later a bedroom there and a little bit? No one would choose to do that unless money was an issue. It's better to be completely new. And that's what God's promises to us as human beings. I'm going I'm to renovate every area of your life, which means I'm going to speak into every area of your lives, even those areas which, which you think are, are for your, you and yours alone. So, what is Paul saying here? You notice the word likewise. That's important. He says likewise, which tells us that this is still about this idea of consistency. It's telling us that just as he spoke to men, and said, look, you need consistency in your life. To to women, he's saying the same thing. It's just that the key issues are different. For men, it was a call to purity and peace. 
For women, it's a call to modesty. So let's ask the obvious question. Is the Bible saying that women in the church can't style their hair or wear nice clothes? For some of you ladies, you might be like, I would actually like that. If God was commanding me to sweatpants and a ponytail each Sunday, that'd be great. I'd get out of the house way quicker, be so much easier. But we can't be that simplistic about it because it's not actually the, the specific application for us. It is true that some of the women here in Ephesus are being called out, but really within this text, you get a universal and a specific uh, instruction. So I'm going to pull the text apart a bit. You can see the, the layers there. So firstly, universally, he says that all women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That is an instruction for the whole church, all time, all places. Not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. That's specifically to the Ephesian women. And then again, it goes universal, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So you might ask, well, how do we know that middle part is just for the Ephesians? Uh, well, the one way we know is that we know a lot about their culture at the time, and their culture was bananas for hair. I mean, the hair was a huge thing. We know this because of the historical artifacts that still exist. Uh, here, is, uh, here is a stone relief. Uh, this is dated to about 200 AD. This is of a Roman woman who's getting her hair done. Notice the four attendants and the mirror that they're holding up. This is like a scene out of any beauty parlor, right? She's getting tended to. The attendants are there. They're, they're giving her the hairstyle that she wants. It looks very much like today. And like today, there were certain modes of dress, certain hairstyles, which were, which were on the forefront. They were hot. They were cool. They were trending. That's what everyone wanted. Now today, we know what these things are because it's all around us, right? Every magazine, uh, every Instagram influencer, every red carpet, we're, the rich and famous are telling us what we should look like, and we have this message coming in loud and clear. In Rome, it, it was the same way. But their method of delivery, of knowing what's hot, was just a little bit different. They had uh, these, these Roman coins. These were minted every few years, and they would always have usually an empress on one side. And you'll notice that the empress's hairstyle was always very clear, and that became the rage. Whatever, whatever empress was wearing, so you can see the different braids and different, that's, the ladies would get this. Hey, have you seen the new coin? Oh man, I gotta get this. I'm going right now to the, my hairdresser. I'm gonna get all these braids. And the, and the women in the marketplace would look and say, oh, she's got the new thing. They would talk with each other. It was, it was exactly the same thing. They were infatuated with having the nicest and the most complex hairstyle. That would, that would be the thing that everyone would want. Now, the women in the church lived in this culture. So that meant they were going to the marketplace. They were seeing the different ladies, the wealthier ladies who had their hair done up. And there were some women from the church that had a lot of money. So they would go and get that hairstyle. They would get the nicest clothes. They would have jewels put in so they would look their best. They were doing that and they were not aware of the impact that was having on the church. See, also in that culture, hair had um, distinct sexual undertones. The prostitutes of the day would also, they would do up their hair to entice the men. So you can imagine the dynamic in the church. If, if ladies were coming in, it would at the very least be a distraction to the men who were there who were trying to focus on the prayer and worship. It would also be a distraction for the women who were checking each other out, seeing who had the best hairstyle. And it would definitely make those who didn't have much money feel, feel kind of worthless because they couldn't look like that. See, this, this was practically a real 
problem for the church, but it, it also highlighted some underlying bigger issues. The real issue here that Paul is touching on is, is what is the nature of true beauty? And the reason I say that's in the text is because one of the words that Paul uses is the word adorn, right? He says to the women, I want you to adorn yourselves. Uh, that word in the Greek is cosmeo, uh, from which we get um, cosmetics. It means to beautify something. And that's exactly what the women in Ephesus were doing, right? They were doing up their hair, they're wearing nice clothes to, to beautify themselves. They wanted people to look at them and think that they were beautiful. They wanted the attention, they wanted the approval. We, we still do this, right? We know what this is like. We, we know that there are certain clothes that we have that we wear those clothes when we want to look our best, right? Case in point, this is one of my top three shirts, okay? It's on the left of my closet. It's in the high rotation. When I wear this shirt, right, I, I feel pretty good. These shoes are my nicest shoes. When I wear this in combination, I feel like the best version of myself. You're getting the best right now, okay? There are certain places, like going on a date with Don or going to some meeting, that I will wear my nicest stuff because I want the extra confidence, you know this is true. We have, even if it's your nicest t-shirt, I want to wear that t-shirt to the game. That's the best one. There's something about clothes, something about looking externally a certain way that, that feeds what's inside us. And, and look, in a small dose, that's not, not a huge deal. Not necessarily a bad thing to wear a nice shirt to a job interview on your first day. Like, that's appropriate. That makes sense. But, but if you take that mindset and you extrapolate it, you know that we can get into a lot of problems. And that our culture, in fact, has a lot of problems because of this misunderstanding of what is, what is truly beautiful and where we get our identity as human beings. There are, there are direct connections from this to things like excessive consumer debt, from just buying too many clothes, buying too many new things to feel good about ourselves. There's the social anxiety that comes from not having those things, from feeling discontent with ourselves because we don't look a certain way, because we don't have certain things. This leads to obsessive exercise or, or eating disorders. This even leads to plastic surgery, right? As we get older, wanting to, to feel younger, not wanting to, to lose that sense of, of the beautiful. And what's more, from all of that lack of peace about ourselves, we then tend to want a lot of attention to be on us, which really is the exact opposite of what the church should be about. Right? Our, our goal as a church is that people would, would notice Jesus, would see what God has done and that we would, we would sort of fade into the background. See, Paul's answer to this misunderstanding of, of beauty and this focus that the ladies are putting on themselves are, are, comes in three words, right? He says he desires that they adorn themselves then with respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control, which um, some of those words actually still seem kind of external, it kind of still seems like what Paul is saying, look, if you just dress a certain way, then everything will be fine. But actually, there's a, there's a nuance there to the different words. Uh, respectable apparel, obviously, is what they wear. That's on the outside. But self-control, that speaks to, uh, to character, speaks to a level of self-restraint. And modesty, modesty is really, I think, encompasses them both. In fact, the principle of modesty is one that we need to think about. In our day, Probably we would say, well, modest dress means something that's not too tight, not too revealing, and, and that would be true for us in our cultural context. But modesty goes far beyond that because modesty, the principle, is one that crosses cultures, and in different cultures, it, it, it applies differently. Really, modesty is about a heart, 
a particular disposition of heart. And uh, I want to read to you uh, something that Elizabeth Elliott wrote, because this, this is really interesting. If you know Elizabeth Elliott, she was a missionary down to South America, and she worked with this uh, tribe, the Akas. So this was a, a tropical region and an indigenous tribe, and she spent a lot of time thinking about how the commands of the Bible, she wanted them to know God, would apply to their very distinct culture. So listen to what she writes about this issue of modesty and clothing. She writes, The Akas were unhampered by clothing and the caprices of fashion with the vanity, jealousy, and covetousness and discontent which it fosters, but stuck firmly to a timeless code of modesty. In their nakedness, they accepted themselves and one another for what they were, always abiding by the rules. Men and women did not bathe together. Women taught their daughters how to sit and stand with modesty. Men taught their sons how to wear the string, which was their only adornment. So notice what she's saying. This this was a tribe that was pretty much naked in the jungle, and yet she was saying there was still a level of modesty there, that there was still a proper way to behave and an improper way to behave, and And that really is the essence of modesty. It's a heart that desires to be proper within your cultural context. So for Paul, he's writing to the women of Ephesus. He's saying, look, don't adorn yourselves with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire. Why? Because it's not proper in that culture. Because if you do that, then you take all of the attention, you put it on yourself. You distract the men in the church. You you buy into this mistaken view of of beauty and you you put all of your emphasis on the externals, which is not at all the way that God sees the world. Now, the Bible, just just to be clear, it's not that the Bible doesn't acknowledge physical beauty. There's a number of times with the Bible where it just says, um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was beautiful. Lot's daughters, they they were beautiful. It just mentions that. It acknowledges that. It's also not the case... Uh, that the Bible says you should never focus on your external appearance. There are some specific instances, like between a husband and wife. In the Song of Solomon, uh, King Solomon praises his wife for her beauty, and she clearly has dolled herself up for her husband. That's a good thing, a beautiful thing. But by and large, the Bible, God himself, puts a very uh, low value on the external appearance. He always more highly values what's going on inside a person. Here's an example of when he's choosing uh, the next king and he sends the prophet Samuel to look at Jesse's sons and, and Samuel right away notices Eliab. He's big and strong, manly and handsome. And here's God's response. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that is, that is how we are to see ourselves and the people around us. Now, now, a gospel note is that by ourselves, our heart is not very lovely to look at. In our sin, there's not a lot that's appealing or lovely. But, but in Christ, as we believe what Jesus has done for us, our heart has been made clean and pure and beautiful, and we can rejoice in the acceptance and approval we have in him. The gospel gift is that our value is no longer attached to what's on the outside or the way that people talk about us or or see us or evaluate us. In fact, let me ask you this question. Not just for the ladies, but for everyone. What if every morning before you got dressed or as you were scrolling through Instagram or walking in the mall, what if you already felt like you were wearing your best outfit? Like all the time. What if you were absolutely convinced 
that God loved you, that he approved of you, that, that he thought you were beautiful? What if you had no concerns about the way that other people saw you? What if no matter your body type or your hairstyle or your age or your purchasing power, you were convinced that God looked on you with delight? Wouldn't that change things? Wouldn't that change the way that we interact with each other, the things that we focused on, the things that we spent money on and time on? See, do you see that, that that's what the gospel brings to us? All of that sense of peace about who we are apart from whatever we have or how we look. See, that's the heart of modesty. A woman who understands this is then able to, to dress and behave in a way that is, is free to put the focus on, on God himself and the others in her life. Now, the last bit that we see here, he says, adorned with modesty and good works, really ties into this. Because really, it's about living that uh, life uh, authentically. So what does it mean then to have good works, to kind of beautify yourself with good works? Well, uh, Paul helps us out in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. He says this, A woman has a reputation for good works if she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. You see the heart there. The heart is one that seeks to serve others, that isn't putting the focus on herself, that isn't seeking for others to serve her. She is wanting to care for those in her family, those in her community, those in her church. That, that is a life that is beautiful to God. It's a life that has a heart of modesty and then lives that out consistently. Now, it's not that guys don't struggle with all this, right? I mean, we know that there are guys that we know, maybe we are one of those guys, that we have a lot of clothes. We've got a lot of suits. We've got a lot of whatever it is. We always like to look our best. There are a lot of guys that focus on their body image too. It's not, it's not saying that. What it's saying though is that this tends to be a, a, it's a tendency for women a struggle for women in particular. Now, ladies, we know it's not, it's not all your fault that as men, we feed into that. We make it harder, we make it worse. We are always focusing on the external, and that's an issue that we need to deal with in our holiness and purity. But for the ladies, this is always a struggle. It seems like it always has been a struggle. And what, what God wants for you to know is that as, as you come to understand who you are as a daughter of, of God, all of those issues of of externals, they fade into the background as you come to know that you are, you are loved, you are accepted, you are approved of. So how do we apply this then? What's the, what's the takeaway for us as a church? Well, I'll just say, uh, just to make very clear, there's no need for us to have a modesty police, okay? Like if you're going to fill out a serve card and add a new team, modesty police, I'll be the one. Don't worry, Matt. I'll check everyone out. I'll tell them if they're, that's, that's not helpful. Okay, you don't, we don't need that. What we need, though, are women who are about godliness, right? Are really in, intentional in terms of wanting to disciple the younger women of the church. So here are some questions for you ladies in light of this text. How do you adorn yourselves? Are there times when you dress for the approval and attention of men who are not your husband? Are there ways in which you are buying into the culture's view of what's beautiful? Are you seeking to fill your life with actual good works that serve others? 
Or are you filling your life with a lot of other busyness that doesn't really put the focus on who God is and what he's done? And what do you want the young women in our church to learn about modesty and godliness as, as they see you? I mean, our hope here as a church is that there will be many opportunities for us to be in each other's lives, for older women to teach younger women. What is it that you hope the young ladies of the church will learn? See, the theme, I'm, I'm hoping you see that the connection, the theme really is one of consistency in life. See, it, just in case we're unclear, to be a Christian, it's really not about how you dress. Like, if you're new to the church here, Please don't hear us saying, look, well, you got to wear this and then you can come and be a part of the community. We, we come as we are. We, we come as we are because we are all in need of Christ. And then God begins to renew us and, and shape us. And that means we see everything differently. We see not as the world sees, as maybe we saw before, but we see ourselves and our community as God sees us. And from that, then we live, hopefully by the grace of God, with consistency. And for men, for men, that means issues of purity, and anger and holiness, and for women, it, it very oftentimes means issues of modesty and self-image. And God's intention here is to really speak words of life-giving love that we might move forward knowing who we are in Christ and then living in a way that honors him. So let me pray for us as a church. God, thank you for this text. Thank you, God, for a text that... Lord, it just seems to, to push us in ways that maybe we, we don't even really want to be pushed or, or think about. And yet, in your sovereign wisdom, you've written these words thousands of years ago that still resonate through us as human beings to our culture this, in this very day, Lord. I pray, God, that in light of this text, you would help us to examine our lives more clearly. Lord, that we would, uh, we would identify sin, we would identify false thinking, Lord, that we would no longer place ourselves in a position where we would be uh, tyrannized by the lies of this world, but God, we would be set free by your grace in the gospel. Help us, Lord, to, to see ourselves as you see us in Christ. And Lord, may we be a church where we seek to live this out authentically, genuinely, lovingly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.